The scripture this morning is from the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verses 43 through 54. Hear the word of the Lord. After the two days he left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they had also been there. Once more he visited Cana and Galilee, where he had turned water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on his way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, Yesterday, at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning to learn at your feet, to learn of the words that you breathe, uh, to shape us, to transform us, and to release us by the power of the Holy Spirit. God, as we've gathered here, Lord, may we uh, be lifted up into your presence. Lord, we are also mindful for our students, the 40-plus students and leaders who have gone away this weekend on a retreat, to also be challenged uh, to be shaped by your word. And we come alongside them uh, as they die deeper into you. May we all be uh, continually shaped by your word uh, to go forth and proclaim your gospel. Lord, we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, welcome all those of you joining us online and those who are here to worship. Uh, what a beautiful day it is. My name is Soon Pak, uh, one of the pastors here, and alongside a great team, Cheryl, you heard from earlier as she interviewed our dear sisters, uh, we lead together uh, followed, following our Lord and Savior. But today we're going to continue our series through the book of John, and we don't want to lose uh, sight of why we're going through this book, this fourth gospel account of the life and the work of Jesus Christ. And John gives us focus in that and why we're pursuing uh, this journey through the book of John in verse 20, uh, ver chapter 20, verse 31, our theme verse for our series. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The very account of John, the very account of the Gospels, the very account of the Scriptures, and for our time today is that you may believe in him and have life. This is the framework of John's writings, like a great lawyer who's making a closing argument to convince you uh, to believe in their case. This is what John is doing, that you may believe in him and have life and life to the full. And when you have time, I encourage you to go back, even through our series so far, uh, through the first four chapters of John, and just circle every time you see the word believe or believed or believers. 
John is trying to hammer it in to the first century readers and for us as well, this idea of belief. Uh, I even highlighted just a few p- passages, a uh, few moments, even our last week's sermon as Pastor Daniel led us, uh, verse 39 and 41 42, the story of uh, the women at the well and how the city came to faith. It says, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. These are written so that you may believe. And this is important that believe not just in a knowledge sense, but actually believe where it deepens us into that idea of faith. What does it look like for us to have faith in Jesus? That's what John is trying to communicate to us, this idea of faith. And Martin Luther, uh, the famous 16th century Protestant reformer, had this great definition of faith, and he used these three Latin terms. Uh, he calls it the notitia, the census, and the fiducia, meaning kind of the information, the knowledge that we have in something, the senses where our hearts and minds get transformed or lifted up uh, into a new idea and the fiducia, the commitment we have, where faith no longer be something we hear about or know about, but we actually step forward in trust and live out our lives. This is John's gospel journey to bring us what Jesus did, the noticia, the conversations he had with people, how he challenged them, exposed them or relieved them and lifted their hearts and minds, the census, and finally the where it begins to change the trajectory of their lives, the fiducia of people. We see it in Nicodemus eventually. We see it at the woman at the well, the people in Samaria. And today we're going to dive deeper into this royal official and his journey of faith, not just for himself, but for his whole household, as we will see. And as we look at his faith journey about how he begins to learn about Jesus, experience him, and actually shape his life around him. We're going to frame our time through three different ways he sees Jesus and his journey of faith. First is that he sees Jesus as the miracle worker, then Jesus as the healer, and then finally, Jesus the Savior, the Savior of the world. Jesus the miracle worker, Jesus the healer, and Jesus the Savior of the world. First, Jesus the miracle worker. Worker, And we pick up our story in Samaria after two days of spectacular ministry uh, in a city. It says the whole city came to be believers, and Jesus returns back to his homeland, where he points out uh, kind of in this aside in John's gospel that a prophet has no honor or, or, or no honor or welcome in his homeland or his country. And he points this out. Because uh, it's interesting, the very next verse, John gives this ironic twist, right? He says, but when Jesus actually arrived, when Jesus arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Now, did John just write this just to prove Jesus wrong, to give him a little laugh? Like he thought one way and now he's wrong? Obviously not. Uh, but what he's trying to say is he's trying to expose a little bit the layers of what we talk about belief in the people and the crowd. You see it in the next lines. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem. So we have to go back, John chapter two. Now, while Jesus, he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them for he knew all people. Another translation actually says that he knew them inside and out. 
See, all these people that say they saw all these signs and wonders, they believed him. He says he knew them inside and out and knew how untrustworthy they truly were. It was faith that didn't go any deeper than what Jesus could do for the people. It was all about all the things he could do, the signs and wonders that people had caught themselves in. And you see it in verse 48, in this one-on-one conversation with the royal official, Jesus actually invokes uh, not what you would expect. He's talking one-on-one about, with the royal official about healing, but he actually uses a second-person plural of the word you. Most of the country, they don't have that in English, but we have it here in the South. What do we say? Okay, so we're going to include some y'all in here. Unless y'all people see signs and wonders, Jesus told them, y'all, you all will never believe. He's having this one-on-one conversation with the royal official, but he's actually addressing the larger crowd, this bigger narrative that, God, that Jesus is trying to communicate. And it's the shallowness of belief that he's touching on, one that never goes beyond the noticia, the information that we have about Jesus. And this is in stark contrast to the Samaritans, and as we'll see in our text, the royal official. See, at first, it's exactly Jesus's reputation that draws the royal official towards him. And it's amazing that the reputation of Jesus, the signs and wonders he has, that it can be both an accusation, but also an invitation. See, it's an accusation towards the crowd, those who hear about him, and that all they fix on is what Jesus can do for them. But also, in the same way, it's an invitation for the royal official to come forward, to learn more about this Jesus, this rabbi that he's heard about. See, the royal official most likely was an official in King Herod's court. In the Greek, it says he's a basilikos. A basilikos, meaning a servant or a herald to the king, the basilius. And in the region he's from, it would be King Herod. King Herod is famous in the scriptures of the one who murdered John the Baptist, who we learned about earlier. And the same herald would travel 15 miles in that day. Traveling at any time was considered very dangerous. And this servant of the king, this royal official, takes a two-day journey from his homeland to go to Jesus to learn more about this miracle worker. It says in verse 47, when this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him, and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Much like now as it was in the first century, uh, someone in power and authority rarely and almost never would go to someone beneath them. If you were in power and authority, you would never uh, lower yourself to that level and come and meet with someone. For example, say, hypothetically, the Queen of England wanted to come visit me here in Charlotte, Uh, she wouldn't just wander her way here, uh, come to Huntersville, knock on my door and say, hey, I want to have a cup of tea with you, uh, as nice as Huntersville and Charlotte is in this time of the year. Uh, But most likely she would send a servant, right? She would invite me and I would have to go to London, which is not really nice this time of year or ever. uh, And then I would meet with her. And there's all these protocols and rules when we meet with the royal officials. Do you guys, how, how many of you guys follow the queen and the royal family. There's a lot of rules uh, that happens when you interact with it. In 2017, a huge uproar happened. A huge scandal happened when uh, a public apology was made by Canada's Governor General, David Johnston. And, and this is the picture. It's a little scandalous. So if you're not, if your stomach's weak, you might not. We want to turn your head. This is the scandal that caused it all. 
If you can't see what's happening, they actually in the article had a zoomed in picture. You're not allowed to touch the queen. She was coming down some steps that were slippery. So he, being the gentleman, reached out and put his hand on her elbow to gently escort her down. It caused such an uproar that he had to make a public apology to the country. You don't break official rules, except when you're in a point of desperation. This royal official breaks all protocols. He doesn't send a servant. He ventures out in pursuit. Why? Because of the stories and reports he heard of this rabbi who's doing amazing miracles. He had exhausted all options for his resources, everything he could afford, everything, every favor he could pull. It wouldn't change the fact that his son was dying. And when he met Jesus, it says, John says he went up to him and he begged him. He laid his position, his title, everything he had. He put it aside because he had the reputation he heard that Jesus could perform miracles. See, he had reached his desperation point and realized that everything he had worked for, every power he could leverage, nothing would change the fact that his son was dying. John Bunyan, author, Puritan says, I was driven to such straits that I must out of necessity go to Jesus. And if he had met me with a drawn sword in his hand, I would sooner have thrown myself upon the edge of his sword than have gone away from him, for I knew him to be my last hope. Friends, I don't know what your desperation point is and what has drawn you into this place this Sunday morning. Maybe you've just given up hope in everything else and have nowhere else to turn. Maybe it's a sickness that you just can't kick in yourself or your family. Maybe it's a loneliness that you can never run from. Maybe it's a feeling that no one really understands the pain I'm going through. And what brought you here, maybe for the last time or maybe for the first time, is the reputation that you've heard, maybe from family and friends, that Jesus is real and he does miracles. That when Jesus shows up, something changes. And as much as the royal official, he says to you, I have so much more than signs and wonders for you. And this is where the royal official meets Jesus, the healer. Jesus, the healer. Verse 49 through 52. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. And then Jesus says, go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. And while he was still on the way, his servants met with him, met him with the news that his boy was living. And when he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. There's so much beauty in this passage because it shows the uniqueness of Jesus. Jesus is having two different conversations with the royal official. There's this one that he's having with the you all, the plural, about his messianic purpose, his rejection by his own people, and the grander narrative that is unfolding that one day, one day soon that he would lay his life down for, all, for his people so that redemption could come. But it doesn't distract him. While he's having this grander narrative, he doesn't distract him from being present with the royal official, that Jesus can be present in both grace and truth in the story in the micro way as well as the macro way. You think about multitasking in our own lives, you know, the myth of multitasking, that we can do all things at the same time, right? Uh, you know, we're taught not to text or drive. We're, not, we're taught not to 
talk to someone and be on our phone, but we all think we can do all things, that we can multitask. But studies have shown over and over again that it's impossible. Even long before then, there's this letter they found from Lord Chesterton in the 1740s giving advice to his two sons, and it says this, there's, there is time enough for everything in the course of the day if you do but one thing at once, but there's not enough time in the year if you would, if you would do two things at the same time. This idea that, you know, as humans in our limited way, that we should take time to do things one at a time in a well way. But the uniqueness of what makes Jesus unique is that he can do two things. He can do multiple things at the same time, that he can be present with you in the pain of your situation and at the same time reveal to you the macro narrative of your life and how it fits into his grander story. So that's the good God we have that he knows the larger story, but he also sits with you in the pain of your own story. He sits with you during your cancer diagnosis, diagnosis and weeps with you, and at the same time calls you to sit with him in the eternal narrative where one day there will be no more sickness. He sits with you in the grieving of a loved one, and at the same time sits with you and calls you to eternal narrative where all things will be restored in the way it was supposed to be, where there will be no more death. And he sits with you in the anger and frustration and anxiety of your situation and at the same time calls you to sit with him in the eternal narrative where his justice and goodness will reign for all eternity. This is Jesus. This is the Jesus who challenges the crowd's expectation to not just believe in miracles and signs, yet brings a miracle to this official's house. He says, don't rely just on signs and wonders. That's not what I'm about. But at the same time, it is present with this royal official and brings a miracle to his house. He is the great physician. He does bring healing. And the official gets a front row seat in a very personal way, seeing that lived out. You see his progression of faith in this official, one from knowledge to one of assent, where it starts shaping the way he thinks about his life and his family. He begins to experience Jesus. And it's not just a reputation that he experiences, but he experiences in a personal way with the impact he has on his son and his family. And so often in our faith journey, when we begin to taste that, we kind of let our, our spiritual hunger for satisfaction wane. See, when our desperation is absolved, where a crisis is relieved, where the storm of our life has passed by, we kind of let off. And that's what the crowd wanted. But Jesus draws us into a deeper faith, a more intimate faith, the final step of faith that Jesus calls us to. And it's Jesus, the Savior. <coughs> Excuse me, Jesus, the Savior. Last two verses that we'll look at. Then the father realized that this was the exact time in which Jesus had said to him, your son, your son will live. So he and his household believes. So he and his whole household believe. See, what started from a place of desperation transforms into a ripple effect of faith. And not just for the official or even just his son, but his whole household. The whole household believed in who Jesus was. And whatever measure of faith that carried that official, the two dangerous days trekked to Jesus and the two dangerous days back to his house, that little bit of faith that he had on his reputation now it's fully grown into a faith where his household can claim Jesus. The trajectory of his whole family and lineage begin to change because of that encounter. McLaren of Manchester puts it this way, talking about the faith we bring sometimes. 
The way to increase faith is to exercise faith. And the true parent of perfect faith is the experience of the blessings that come from the crudest, crudest, rudest, narrowest, blindest, feeblest faith that a man can exercise. Trust him as you can, and he will give you so much more than you expected that you will trust him more. What he's saying is like whatever measure of faith you start with, maybe it's just on what you think he can do to what you feel like you've experienced in your life. If you carry that to Jesus and you experience that transformation, that's the only way that we increase to this level of faith where we can move mountains. It's when we take whatever imperfect faith we have that it can grow and blossom into what God has called us to. I have, uh, I have four children. Three of them are boys. And you would think stereotypically that they'd be rambunctious and kind of crazy all over the place. But if you met them or encountered them or spent time with them, you, you realize they're, they're pretty timid and shy uh, kids. And especially the boys, when they were younger, uh, actually, my daughter's not that way, but my boys, when they were younger, we would go to the playground. You know, it's a lot of fun. We're having fun. And the pinnacle of a playground uh, when you go with your kids is the giant slide, the large slide, the big slide, whatever you call it. And you take the kid up there, and he's excited, and he's about to go down, and he just, he's just frozen. Especially my kids. They would just stand, sit up there. And then eventually there'd be a log jam of kids. They're just yelling, and there's like a line of... And you don't want to get behind, uh, get involved with kids that are angry about the slide. And so you're sitting there trying to coach him, my, my children. Hey, I'm trying to coach him coming down the slide and gently pushing him, gently pushing him. Eventually I just push him down. <clears throat> That's a whole other issue where now Aaron and I are fighting and we never go to back to the playground because that's a place of a lot of, it's very traumatic for me. No, but, you know, eventually they get it, right? You know, that all that fear they had, they eventually go down the slide. Then what happens now? We can't leave the playground because that's all they want to do, go down the slide over and over and over again. That little bit of trust, that little bit of faith, if you just go over it, it awakens an adventure of spirit in you that increases the faith that much more. And as adults, we think the same way. The frontiers that God is calling us to, the way he's calling you and I, the ways he's calling this church to step beyond the faith that we've had so far and to move deeper into the frontiers of what it means to love our neighbors, what it means to expand his kingdom, what it means to have a conversation with someone that is hostile against you. As our sister shared about those who are scared of the gospel, fearful that it would change what their framework of life. But that's exactly what he calls us to in those hostile moments, to step forward, step across, because the adventure he has for you is so much greater than where we start from. And what it takes to get there is not more studying, not more contemplation, but just exercising that little bit of faith that we have. It's the same faith that the official experienced in the healing of his son, not in a general sense, but in the exact moment, it says, the exact moment Jesus says, your son will live. And he investigates. And the servant affirms it. And it says this household believed. See, John, our author, is just trying to show us that when Jesus shows up in someone's life, when Jesus shows up in a powerful way, it always has a social dimension as well. That we almost can't keep it in when we hear the faith story of our own lives. When those powerful stories begin to take shape, it has to leak out. It has to spread out. We saw it at the women at the well and in the city, and we see it here in the royal official. It says the household believed. And it's through powerful stories that when we share our faith that entire households, 
communities and neighborhoods and cities and the world itself will be transformed. That is the means in which God has called us to, to bring reconciliation, restoration, and redemption to our city and world. And when your faith is deepened in this information, it increases our commitment to love our neighbors as ourselves. This great adventure that God calls us to. But let us not forget the story that is being told. Because I know what you're thinking at this point. If you've experienced heartache in your life, what about the stories that don't end in healing? What about the stories where I don't get the miracle? How does my faith strengthen when I don't see the fruit of the faith I've brought to the table? I have faith, but I didn't receive a miracle. I didn't receive a healing. My child died. My rescue never showed up. Where do we go from here? Well, sometimes in the story, we got to lift a little bit higher. Because the story is just as much the royal official. It's actually about another family. And it's the family of God, God the Father who sent his son. And it says it for us, those who can't experience the fruit of our faith, those who don't receive the healing. John 20, 29 says, blessed are those who have not seen, yet have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Our blessing is not in the miracle or in the healing. It is in the Savior. The Savior who obediently followed the Father to the cross, the one who lived the perfect life, who had all things at his feet and laid it down. And the Father looked at him and says, my son must die so that we could have new life. The Son of Man, the Son of God, went to the cross and died the death we deserve so that we could have new life. The scandalous grace, this great gospel, this good news is this, that more than a miracle and healing, we have a Savior who has gone before us, who's paid the price so that we could believe in him and have life and life to the full. That is the grander narrative that God is calling us to lift our gaze a little higher to. All the struggles and pain, we say we need a miracle. God says that miracle has come in Christ, and we may not see it in our life, but in all things, God will restore it for his purpose. That's the story God is calling us into. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the goodness of who you are, that God, you are a good God, that you hold all things in your hands, that you spoke all things into being and you hold it in your hands, yet at the same time, you hold our very hearts, you hold our very souls, you hold our very lives, and that you sit with us. And Lord, that you sent your Son you sent your son into this world to live a life that we could never live and died the death we'd so deserve. So, Father, that we could be called sons and daughters of the most holy God, most holy God. And by your Holy Spirit, Lord, that you graft us into Christ, that you unite us into Christ. And only through his righteous acts, Lord, that you look upon us and call us righteous. So in turn, we can call you our good father who loves us and who has called us into a deeper, deeper, deeper mission of making this world the way it was always meant to be in your name. We pray this in your precious son's name. Amen.